Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey, good morning, guys. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron. I get the great privilege to serve here as the lead pastor and church planter. If you're a guest, thank you again so much for hanging out with us, worshiping today, spending your Sunday with us at Redemption. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of James called James. Brilliant, right? Bold words from Jesus' brother. And today, the bold words that Pastor James is going to have for us is wisdom and understanding. Now, those two words, they are synonymous. So the big idea today is wisdom. So before I preach on wisdom, let me pray so that God can give me some wisdom. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. Lord, that you have created this universe in a way to to reflect your glory and, Father, to also give us great joy. And so we pray that our will will be aligned with your will so that way we can live the way that you have designed us to live. Lord, I pray that we would continue to grow. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would, would fill us so we, can, so we can grow and make wise choices and decisions that reflect your glory. And we pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So what are some of the biggest questions in life. Hey, I want you to think about it. Like, what are some of the biggest questions? Some of the most important decisions that we make really are based upon the questions that we ask ourselves. So what is the biggest question in your life? I thought about this week and I came up with five big questions. So these are my list of five big questions. The first question is this, will you marry me? Okay, that, that's a big question, right? The way that you answer that question or ask that question really does determine the way in which you live the rest of your life. Will you marry me? I remember whenever I asked Ashley if she would marry me. We had just gotten into an argument and I, I made her cry. And, and I realized in that moment that I, I never want to hurt this girl. And I would do anything that I could to be able to love her and provide for her and protect her and to be her husband. And so I asked her to marry me. And I was nervous, but, but she said yes. And here we are still nine years later and she and I are still married and love each other very well. And so, but will you marry me? That's a, that's a very important question. What about this one? Number two, what do you want to be when you grow up? Okay, that's a big question. We ask it to kids all the time. Well, what do you want to be when you grow up? But some of us, we're still trying to figure that out. Amen? And so maybe we can help you with that today. Um, you can come forward and our team would love to pray for you if that's where you find yourself at. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Here, how about this one? Number three, what's for dinner? Okay, uh, that's, that's a very important question. I ask that question every single day. Hey, hey babe, what's, what's for dinner? Right? And the way that you answer this, it could cause a lot of fights. There could be a lot of disagreements. Like you come home on a Friday night and nobody had any plans. You're like, what's for dinner? You're like, I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? And then, and then nobody can reach an agreement. And so that's probably the argument that led to me actually proposing, actually. So um, what's for dinner? Big, big, big question. How about this one? Number four, are we there yet? Now, kids love to ask their parents this to drive them crazy, but if you, if you really think about it, it is an existential question, and we could drive ourselves crazy asking this all the time. Are we there yet? Are we where yet? Everywhere we are, that's where we're at, so maybe we are there yet. I don't know. All right, just, just something to think about on your way home, and then you can ask, are we there yet? And number five, what about this one? What is the meaning of life? Ah, now that, that is the Big question. What is the meaning of life? And the way that we answer this question, it really determines everything, doesn't it? Who we date, who we marry, how we raise our kids, where we go to school, uh, where we go to church. Everything really is contingent upon 
the way in which we answer this question. What is the meaning of life? And now, a lot of philosophers and a lot of scholars and theologians and anthropologists and sociologists, they've all wrestled with this big question. What is the meaning of life? And people come up with all sorts of different answers. And the way that we answer that, we're going to need something called wisdom. And that's what the Bible teaches us, is this thing called wisdom. And so for some of those questions, you're going to need a little bit more wisdom than other questions. But to all of these, you're going to need, to some varying degree, a form of wisdom. And so Pastor James today, he's going to be talking to us about this big theme called wisdom. Now, before we jump into James, I'm going to have to do some theological setup for us um, to be able to determine the way in which we answer this. And, and so, what type of wisdom do you have? And, and anthropologists and others, they, they come up with this, and it's called a, a worldview. And, and so, the way that you answer this question, what is the meaning of life, is really dependent upon your, your worldview. And what James says is there's two worldviews when it comes to wisdom. There is worldly wisdom, and then there is going to be godly wisdom. And so we'll first by, start by talking about worldly wisdom. Now, worldly wisdom would basically say this, that all there is in this life is the here and now. That all there is is in this moment what I can taste, what I can touch, what I can sense, what I can feel, what emotions that I have, and what I can experience in my life. So everything is based upon the here and now. So this is my life. This is how I live. This is who I want to be. These are the decisions that I, I want to make. And so I, I got a job and I, I make some money and, and, and you know, I, I buy a house or, or maybe I'm married or maybe I'm single or maybe I you know, have kids or maybe I don't have kids or maybe I like to go out on Friday night. Maybe I like to stay home and watch Netflix. But regardless of this is just my life and this is who I am and this is how that I want to be. Now on the surface, none of those things sound very detrimental now, does it? I mean, we all know people who live their life this way. Heck, most of us probably do live our lives this way. I mean, what's the problem with that? I make some money, I pay my taxes, pay my bills, maybe go on a vacation, get a dog. Everything seems to be fine. But what we're going to see today is that if we dig just a little bit deeper, if we, if we look just a little bit behind the surface, this way of thinking, this form of wisdom, right? it doesn't actually bring flourishing, but rather it's going to bring us frustration. It doesn't bring us greater greater promise, but rather it's going to bring us, in the end, greater pain. Because here's, here's the deal. In all of those things that I just mentioned, do you know what the only constant variable in all of the decisions that we make is? You. You are the only constant variable in the decisions that you make. This is my life. This is how I want to live. This is how I want to raise my kids. This is how I want to see my life, see my perspective, see my difference, see my proclivities. This is who I am. So what's in it for me. And the world would say that you are the center of the universe and everything exists, everything serves, everything revolves around you. So what do you desire? What do you long for? What do you look for? Who do you want to be? The constant refrain of the world is me, 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 me. And now some of us would step back and say, Byron, that's not very true, but isn't it? I mean, everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, everywhere we go, isn't people just constantly selling us this insatiable desire for our Selves. I mean, turn on the TV, right? From the movies that we watch to the television shows that we, that we watch, from the magazines that we buy to the books that we read, everyone is constantly selling through marketing, through advertising, through social media, this insatiable desires for our self. How does this better myself? How does this improve myself? How does this boost my self-esteem? How do I derive my self-worth? What does this mean for, my, for myself? And, and some people, they can even get very religious about it. 
And you can get pretty religious and you think, well, I do all of these things for God. And so I, I tie 10% and I speak in tongues and I, I go to this church and I read my Bible this many times. and I read this version of the Bible. And so God owes me because I'm doing all these things for God. And so God then now, He owes me. And some people can get very spiritual about it and say, well, I believe in a God and I believe that God exists, but, but God exists for me. And so, you know, God wants to make me happy. God serves me. God loves me. God's there for me. And so in this, you're still at the center. And then God just revolves and God exists for you. And so in that worldly thinking, God is like a vending machine. You put a couple quarters in, press a couple buttons, and then God gives you what you want because you're still at the, at the center. This is, this is worldly wisdom. And now you don't have to be a part of another religion. You don't have to be an atheist or an agnostic to have this type of wisdom, you just have to be human. Okay, if, you have, if you have blood in your veins, if you have breath in your lungs, then you're susceptible to this worldly wisdom. Now, I know that I'm guilty of it. Okay, just honest moment. Okay, I want the world to revolve around me. I, I, I do. You know what the first thing that I think about in the morning is? Me. I wake up about 6 o'clock in the morning, and, and Ashley and Esther, our, our little girl, Ashley, my wife, um, they're, they're still sleeping. And so at six o'clock in the morning, I, I get out of bed and I don't turn the light on and I kind of tiptoe quietly out of the room. Why? Because I don't want to wake them up. Now, on the surface, you think, oh, Byron's so considerate. But really what I'm thinking is, if they wake up, my whole morning is ruined. Because then I got to spend time with them. And, 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 and my ritual and my routine is messed up and I can't walk my dog and I can't drink my cup of coffee and I can't sit on my couch and have my time. And so if they wake up, my morning's ruined because then I got to hang out with them. And then Ashley gets to take a shower and I got to watch the baby. And then, and then we have to eat breakfast and I got to pray with them and I got to read my Bible with them. And I got to do devotions with them. And then my whole morning is ruined. And then I'm late getting out the door. And then I'm late getting out the door. And so then I get to work. And when I get to work, guess what I want at work? I want me. I want to do what I want. I want a nice, peaceful, easy day. I want to read a book. I want to, I want to write a blog. I want to plan for the future, maybe work on a sermon. Like, I just want a nice, easy day. But inevitably, something gets in my way. Some problem comes up, some situation that I have to take care of, and then I'm stressed and I'm exhausted and my day is just fried. And then I come home from work. And guess what I want when I get home from work? I want me. I want Ashley to meet me at the door and I want her to throw her arms wide open and say, oh baby, I love you and I miss you and I've been praying for you and I can't wait to see you and I'm so happy that you're home. Right? Thank you for working hard for us. Thank you for providing for us. What do you want to do tonight? Ash Esther's asleep. I made tacos. Let's watch the Astros game because it's all for you. That's what I want. That's what I want. And then when I lay my head down at the end of the night, guess what the last thing that runs through my head is? Me. Anybody else? Okay, I'm the only one having church today? Okay, alright, good. So I'll just preach to myself and maybe the Holy Spirit will show up and convict you later. So, me, right, I want the world to revolve around me. See, this is, this is, worldly, this is worldly wisdom and it's, it's everywhere. And, and so if you go to the world and you say, what is the meaning of life? The world would just say, you baby, what do you want to do? What's about you? Like, how do you want to live? What do you want to say? And so, Say if you want to know what's happening in cultural current events, and so you turn on the television, you go to watch the news. By the way, not a wise decision, but you go to watch the news. So on the news, if you're on this side of the political spectrum, you're going to get this sort of information. And then if you're on the other side of the political aisle, then you're going to get this sort of information. Now, on both channels, 
People are arguing. People are fighting. People are debating. People are raising their voice and they're making their big points, but they're all just telling you that you're right. Because we bend towards our own proclivities. Well, let's say, let's say that you turn to culture and you say, what is the meaning of life? The culture would just say, whatever you want it to be. Life is just the moment, the here and the now, what you can experience, what you can taste, what you can feel, what you can pleasure in. So what makes you happy? Live your life how you want to. And if you just think this is the way to go and this is who you want to be, then as long as your happiness doesn't impede on anybody else's happiness and satisfaction, then at the end of your life, everything just kind of plays out anyway. And so the world in its wisdom would just say, you. That you are the center of the universe and everything exists to make you happy. So looking for happiness in marriage, in culture, in college, in more information, in children, in friends, in money, in sex, in wealth, in fill in the blank. And the world in its wisdom would say, you. But if you come to the Bible and you ask the Bible what's the meaning of life, well, the Bible's going to say something completely different. Okay, from the very beginning, the Bible sets up a, a, a worldview that is totally different than anything that we had ever really heard before. And, and so um, I'm going to say something, and I don't think that you're going to understand it. I, I really hope that you are able to grasp this. Okay, but the whole refrain of the Scripture is this. Life is not about you. Life is not about you. And I know that's some big esoteric truth that a lot of us have hard times comprehending, but it's in the Bible from the very beginning. So here's what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Anyway, in the beginning, what's the word? What's the word in the beginning? God. Here's another way you can read that, my translation. In the beginning, not you. Not you. So from the very beginning, God existed. And this is something that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around is that God existed before the beginning. Okay, before there was a beginning, there was, there was God. And, and God has designed this earth in a way that everything would reflect that His glory. And so the whole point is not that God would point at you, okay, but that we would exist to point back towards God. And so our goal in life is to live for this glory, because the glory of God, it really does change the way in which we live. All of our decisions, all of our inclinations and our desires, the way we think, the way we act, the way that we operate, okay, is really changed when we grasp this form of wisdom. That God exists for God and that we exist to glorify Him in all that we do. This really does change a whole lot. Several hundred years ago, some very smart men, wise men, um, theologians, they got together and they wanted to figure out what is the meaning of life? Because now that really is the, the question, right? What is the meaning of life? And so they, they all got together and they, they synthesized the Bible and they read through it and they wanted to boil it down to one easy phrase for all of us to remember. And it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is a shorter catechism. And here's, I love what it says. And here's, here's what it says. It says, the chief end of man or the meaning of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So what is the meaning of life? Right? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That when I glory in God, that when I live for Him in all of my life, in all of my circumstances, in all of the seasons and things in which I do, when I live for the glory of God, then God promises that I would receive His joy and that I could enjoy Him 
forever. And now I want to show you that there is a lot of wisdom in this because today we are talking about wisdom. And so here's where the wisdom is found. That if my life is for my glory, then I will never be satisfied. Because there's always something else. There's always something more. There's always someone else. That hope and happiness was always out there just beyond my reach and I never could get it and I want more and I long for more and I need more and I desire more and there must be more because I will never be satisfied. But, if I live for the glory of God then, well, I'll always be satisfied because in Him I have everything that I need. And so I have satisfaction when God is glorified in my in my life. And so when things aren't working out the way that I want, I don't have to freak out, I don't have to overreact, I don't have to blow up, right? because I never lost my joy. It was always right there. When me and my wife are struggling in our, in our marriage and we can't really get along and we can't make a decision, the meaning for my marriage is still in place. When work is exhausting and grueling and tiring and demanding, I know that I work for a different purpose more so than just a paycheck, but my meaning of life is still intact. And when it comes to our church, when it comes to our children, when it comes to our friendships, if we live for the glory of God, then we are always free to experience life the way in which God has always intended to be because it's not about me and God is still at the center. And so everything still has its place. Do you see the, the freedom that comes when you live your life this way? Now, this is really good news, that God would be glorified. But here's the problem that many of us are going to wrestle with. And I love you, and I really want you to understand this, but there's going to be some pushback on this point. And so I really want to kind of better help you to grasp this. If, if we're talking about wisdom and living for the glory of God, well, how do we, how do we know who God is? That God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. And that in this Word, we find the wisdom of of God. And so that means that this word is, is good. That this word is true. This word is timeless and timely. And this word tells us who God is and what God has done and how our lives are to be reflective of the glory of God in all that we do. This book is not just self-help. This book is not ten simple steps to becoming the best version of yourself. This book is not, this book is not opinions or preferences. This book is not something that you can pick and choose what you like and what you don't like and what you want to follow and what you want to disregard. It's not outdated ethics of opinions and preferences and circumstances and just whatever you want it to be. This Word is God's Word. And this Word is true. And every word in it is to draw us, lead us, guide us to experience the greatest joy that God has for us. Now listen. The parts in the Bible that we find uneasy, the parts of the Bible that we find uncomfortable, the parts that are challenging, the parts in there that we don't like, the parts in there we're reading like, God, I really think you missed on that one. The parts of the Bible that we struggle with, listen to me, they're in there to lead you to the greatest satisfaction, not begrudging submission. That when they lead us to glory in God, it's there to show us God's best life that He has designed us to live. Okay, let, me, let me give you an illustration to, to better help you understand this. Okay, we all want things that in the end aren't good for us. Amen? We all want things that in the end are not good for us. My little girl, she's 11 months old. Now, if Esther could have her way, the greatest thing in her life, the most joy that she could ever derive from anything, life her way is this. 
sticking things in her mouth and playing with electrical sockets. Like, if she could have her way, that's what she'd do. I don't understand it because, because we could put her in a room filled with toys and family and food and say, babe, you can play with anything that you want. She's going to beeline to an electrical socket. And I just don't, I don't understand it works. But here's what she thinks. She thinks that this is going to make me happy. As a father, I'm like, no, babe, that's not going to make you happy. That's actually going to bring you more pain because as a father, I know what's best for my, for my little girl. Okay, now, there's nothing that Esther hates more in this world than the car seat. Okay, parents, you understand this? Do you remember that? There's nothing that my little girl hates more in the world than the car seat. She can be totally happy, totally fine, and, and we get her dressed, and we go change her clothes, and change her diaper, and we're fixing to go somewhere. So we go down the stairs, and then she sees the car seat, and she flies into a fit of rage. She's arching her back, she's screaming, she's hollering, because the most unloving thing that I could ever do is to put her in this car seat. And if I was a good father, then I wouldn't place these limitations on her, and I would let her be free, and I would let her do what she wants to do, because this is oppressive, this is restrictive, this is not the way that she wants to live her life. Why? Because she has worldly wisdom. See, as a father, I know, baby, this is best for you. And I understand some things that you probably don't understand right now, and in the end, this is going to lead to the best life. So in that instance, I have godly wisdom as a father. And I need you to understand this. When it comes to understanding the Bible, when it comes to reading this, and when it comes to the Christian life, here's what you need to know. God is a father. God is a father, and He loves you, and He really does want the best for you. And He wants to lead you into the best life, and He wants you to follow Him into what He has designed and purpose for your life. But God also knows that what we want in the end doesn't always bring us the greatest satisfaction. God also knows that if we glory in ourselves, if the whole meaning of life is for me and revolve around me, God knows that's not going to bring the best life for you. See, chasing after your own glory through, through money, through wealth, through job, through sex, through family, through children, through social media, through politics, fill in the blank. God knows that that's not going to lead to your more joy. And so God wants us to have not worldly wisdom, where life is all about the here and now and what I can taste and what I want. He wants us to live by this godly wisdom. And so yeah, we are still studying the book of James. So now why did I spend that whole 20 minutes just talking to you about this? Because James Church has a problem. And as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, that the problem in James Church is that his church is behaving more worldly than they are godly. And that James Church has this massive problem that he's trying to address and he wants to correct and he wants to dive long into this argument, talking about worldliness and talking about godliness. And I had to set that up because over the next couple of weeks, it's going to be a major theme that we're going to be tackling through our study in James. And so James is going to ask us three questions today, talking about worldliness and godliness. And he's going to ask us three questions. And first, if you're taking notes, go ahead and get out your you know, notepad, get out your pen, right, get out your iPhone. And, and, and here's my outline for our service. So here's three questions. First, he's going to ask, who is wise? Then he's going to ask, where does wisdom come from? And then he's going to ask, what does wisdom look like? So who, 
where, what? Got it? Who, where, what? And I have a bonus question at the end, but that's just for you. So, so we're going to jump into James chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to look at these two forms of, of wisdom and how they, how they play out. So James starts off in verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, don't you just love it when a point comes together like that? First question is, who is wise? And then he just says, who is wise and understanding among you? I don't know about you, but I like it. It makes sermon prep a lot easier. Okay, so who is wise among you? He says, so do you think you're pretty smart? Right? You think you're pretty successful? You think people look up to you? you got a pretty good reputation. People like you. Okay, is that what wisdom is? Is that what wisdom is? So, so who is wise? And how do we know if someone is, is wise? Is it because that they say they're wise? Is it because they have a position? Is it because that they have a, a title? What makes a person wise? James continues, he says, By his good conduct, let him show his works through the meekness of his wisdom. And, and James just sets off with a challenge. He says, okay, you think you're wise? Okay, what is wisdom and who is wise? And then James says, wisdom is known by its works. That wisdom is not what you know. Wisdom is the way that you live. There's a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge who make really dumb decisions, amen? That's because wisdom is not what you know, but wisdom is the way that you, you live. See, there's a lot of people who are very smart. You ever met someone, you're like, man, they're brilliant. And then you hang out with them, you're like, they're idiots, right? That's because they have knowledge and know wisdom. And, and James is saying this, wisdom is not what you know, but wisdom is the way that you live. So who's the wisest person that you know? Hey, think about it. Who's the wisest person that you know? For me, it's a man named Donnie Filippo. Donnie Filippo is my pastor because I believe that every pastor needs a pastor. And so I have a pastor, and his name's Donnie Filippo. And when Ashley and I moved here several years ago, we served at his church. And we spent about a year sitting under his spiritual authority and sitting under his teaching and serving in that church. And now, here's the reason why I believe that Donnie Filippo is the wisest person that I know. When you walk and you meet him, you wouldn't think he was the best pastor in the world. Okay, his church, not that big. It's about the same size as ours. When you listen to him preach, you'd think, well, I could download a podcast from someone else and it would probably be better than this. And, and you go into his office and it's not wall-to-wall systematic theologies and, 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 and doctrine books and studies. No, just an office with a desk. And, and when you talk to him, he doesn't use big words to confound you and to confuse you and to make you think that he's smarter than what he actually is. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that either. He dresses like a normal man. He wears blue jeans, boots, and a button-up t-shirt. There's nothing about Donnie that when you see him, you would think, wow, look at this guy. He must be so wise. But do you know why Donnie is wise? Because Donnie practices what he preaches. That when Donnie speaks, his life reflects the glory of God and he lives and he is who he is. Because wisdom is not what you know. Wisdom is the way that you live. And so when Pastor Donnie talks to me, I listen. Because when he talks about prayer, I've seen that man pray. I know, I want to learn because I've seen him pray. When he talks about the Bible, I listen because I know that he knows the Bible and I know that he lives out what he believes. And when he talks to me about marriage, I, I listen because I, I know his wife. I know the type of marriage that they have. I know how loving and kind and generous that she is. And when he talks about raising a family, I, I really listen because I know his family. I know what they've gone through. I know what they walked through. I know what 
type of father that he is. And so when he talks about those things, I listen because Donnie lives for the glory of God. And that he practices what he preaches. That he is who he is. Now, James is saying this. You say that you're wise. But I see the way you live. That you act like you got it all together. You, you think that you're big. You think that you're smart. You think that you're successful. Okay, let's prove it. Because I know the way that you live. I follow you on Facebook. I've seen you on Snapchat. I saw you at the bar. I know who you are. You are not who you claim to be. See, the big problem in James Church is what? That there are a lot of people who knew a lot, but they didn't do anything. They would claim to love Jesus, but they would live a life that denied Jesus. They would sit in church every single week, but they didn't do anything. They didn't love, they didn't serve, they didn't give. They had knowledge with no transformation. They had knowledge with no works. They claimed to have wisdom. And James says, it doesn't make sense. You're saying one thing, but you're doing another thing and it's not working. Now, you would think that after 2,000 years, we'd have this figured out by now, right? Surely this shouldn't be a problem in churches today. No, no one would say one thing and do another. But nevertheless, we still have the same problem that James was having. And so James is basically forming an argument. And he's, he's jumping in headlong into this conversation. And he starts by asking the question, who is wise? And he's like, shut up, put your hand down, sit down, you're not. Listen to me. Okay, who is wise? And then he's going to ask another question. He's going to say, where does your wisdom come from? Where does the wisdom come from? Here's, here's the second question. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We'll talk about that. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so James is really juxtaposing these two forms of wisdom. So we have worldly wisdom, and then we have godly wisdom. And he wants to know, where does this come from? And he starts by talking about worldly wisdom. He says, worldly wisdom is marked by two things. That it's marked by um, bitter envy or bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now here's my question. If life is all about you, in the end, how could it result in anything other than bitter envy or jealousy and selfish ambition? If life is all about you, how could it end in any other form except for bitterness and selfishness? The answer is, it can't. Because there's always something more. There's always something to compare myself to. There's always something to long for. And there's always something that I need because I will never truly be satisfied. So let's just give you a little scenario. Okay, let's say you're at work. I know a lot of people have jobs kind of like this. And so let's say you're at work and you're working for your promotion. And, and, and you really want this promotion. You want this job. You, you really want the pay. You want the benefits. You want the life. You want this position. But so does another coworker. And so you're both working for this job and, and you, you think you've earned it. And you think that you've deserved it. And you think that you've got it. Well, they overlook you and they hire the other guy. Now, can you celebrate with him? Can you be congratulatory to him? Can you say, great job, bro? No, you can't. Why? Because he has something that you wanted and now you don't have it and so now you need to get what 
he has because your satisfaction was wrapped up in your promotion. And, and so then it results, to, results in you becoming bitter and jealous and having this selfish ambition because now, now you badmouth the boss, now you talk bad to your other employees, you look at him, you say, well, he didn't earn it, I really earned it, he doesn't deserve it, I really deserve it, and in the end it's probably going to come out that he cheated in some way, and so then maybe I'll get it or I'll just start looking for another job. Well, let's turn the tables. Let's say you got the promotion. Sounds good, right? Is that happiness? Is that satisfaction? Probably in the short run. Yeah, increased standard of living. Okay, I can buy me a new house. I can get me a new car, give me a nice watch, maybe a 4K 50-inch television, put it on my wall, right? Take my wife out for dinner. Maybe we could go on vacation. So it's great, right? Increased standard of living, perfect. But how long does that last? Let's think about it. how long does that last? Five years, ten years? A little bit further down the line, you're, you're thinking about it. You're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. But then as you get so wrapped up in your work and that's your job and then you got more responsibilities and then more people are looking to you and then you spend more money and you make more money and there's less money and now you got to keep building this life in which you're working towards. And at the end, you really think, was this really worth it at all? Because everywhere you go, there's always someone one step behind you and they're always gunning for your job. And the moment that you lose your job is the moment that you lose your joy. So it doesn't really work in the end. Now, some of you are like, Byron, that is a ridiculous analogy, and nobody lives their life that way. We all do. That's called the American dream. That's what we're working for. That's what we're all striving for. That's what we're exhausted for. We're working for this American dream that I can build a better life. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I got rugged individualism. I am who I am, and I can make this money, and I can earn this job, and I can buy this house, and I can increase my standard of living so that I can live. And James says, that's worldly wisdom. That you're selling yourself out for something that in the end is never really going to bring you true joy. James says that's, that's worldly wisdom. Now, is, is it bad to have a job? No. Right? Is, it, is it bad to, to, to want to take your wife out for dinner? No. Is it bad to get a house? No. Is it bad to want these things? No. But when good things become gods, that's sin. And that's what we're being sold every step and every way and every place in worldly wisdom, taking good things and making them gods. And so this results in bitter envy and this results in selfishness. And James says it leads up to boasting and lying. So I've got to boast about who I am, right? This is who I am. This is what I've done. I'm a good person. I've earned these things. I've done these things. Everybody come look at me and lying. You ever met the person they're like, I have to be the center of attention. Everybody needs to come listen to me and everybody needs to talk to me. I know I have the lights on me right now. But nevertheless, why do we do what we do? Why do we act the way that we act? Why do we say the things that we say? You ever been in a situation where you're like, I have no clue where that came from? He says it's worldly wisdom. He says worldly wisdom comes from, comes from three places. First, he says it's, it's earthly. Okay, this means that there's no concern about the future. Not the five to ten years that comes down the line, but the eternity future where we stand before a living and holy God. It says, all there is in this life is the moment, the now. What is going to satisfy me? It rejects that there is a God, that we live for His glory, and that one day we will be judged. And one day we will stand and we will give an account. And when it says account, it doesn't mean your bank account. It doesn't mean your Facebook account. It doesn't mean your Xbox account. Like, you're going to have to give a living, real account of your life and how you spent your days. Worldly wisdom would say, all there is is now. Number two, he says, it's unspiritual. 
Okay, this means you're not being led of the Holy Spirit. That, that the Holy Spirit is not working and active in your life. You're not infilled, indwelled, or operating by the Spirit, but rather you're being driven by your flesh, your own sinful desires bent in towards self and sin, and so you're not being led of the Spirit. Now listen, in this life, you can either be led by the Spirit or you can be driven by your flesh, but you won't be able to live in both. James says it's unspiritual what you're doing and the way you're living. And then he says, just point blank, it's demonic. James, that's a little harsh, right? It's demonic. Well, here's what I love about James. And what we've seen this entire series is this. James, James is just bold. James doesn't hold anything back. James tells it as it is. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. Right? Now, what we want to do is we want to distance ourselves from, from the sin. And so we'll get together in our community groups and we'll sit around and we'll, we'll talk and we'll have a, have a meal and we're going to share because that's what Christians do, right? We, we share. And, and we're going to talk about our vague struggles and our unspoken prayer requests. Or maybe we'll get together and we'll have coffee with someone and we'll sit across from them in conversation and we'll say, I have some pressure points. There's just a couple of things that I feel like I, I don't know. I just, uh, you know. And, and we're going to have these, have these conversations, these Christian conversations, and, and, and we're going to encourage one another. We're going to pat each other on the back. We say, oh, it's okay. I love you. It's going to be better. Now, if you were to sit down and you were to have a conversation with Pastor James, though, and you were to tell James, you're like, I, I got some things that I'm making some bad decisions about. James would be like, no, you're demonic. You're like, what? No, you are being a demon. You're living like a demon. And we're like, no, James, definitely not. I just have, I just have some things. They're like, no, 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 no. Let's just call it for what it is. It's demonic. How is it demonic? Listen. Because you're deriving the decisions, the desires, the well-being, and the worldview that you are basing your life on a lie. And what do demons do? They lie. And if you live in a lie, it's demonic. Demons lie to us about everything. The native tongue of Satan is lie. It lies to us about who God is. It lies to us about what God has done. It lies to us about who God says that He is and what God wants us to do and how God wants us to live. And it lies to us and it makes us think that the greatest moment of my satisfaction and all my desires will be ultimately only found in myself. It's a lie. And James says it's demonic. He says it's unspiritual and it's earthly. And that worldly wisdom leads to all sorts of disorder and devastation in our lives. I mean, just think about it. This type of thinking, how does this apply to us? Worldly wisdom impacts, infects, affects every aspect of our existence. Okay, just, just think about this. How does this, how does this relate to our friendships? Okay, think about it. If you're in a relationship as a friendship, somebody who's close to you, and, and they exist for your well-being, for your happiness, for your satisfaction, the moment that there's any sort of disagreement, any sort of contentiousness or argument in the relationship, any sort of sin that happens, we don't reconcile. We kill the relationship and move on to someone else. We can't say, I'm sorry. We can't repent. We can't have an honest conversation. Why? Well, because there's no benefit for me in the end. And so we just move on to the next. How many of you have friendships that have been destroyed because of this? If you're like me, probably many. How does this how does this reflect to our marriage? I mean, here's, in our marriages, like you want to see a miserable marriage? 
Look for someone who puts their needs above that of their spouse. People come and they're like, Pastor Byron, we're going to get married. It's going to be amazing. We're going to live happily ever, ever, ever after. And I'm like, if you think that putting two selfish people in a house together equals happiness, you're mistaken. Right? You're, you're mistaken, right? If you think that this person is going to make me happy, right, you're going to be arguing, you're going to be fighting, you're going to be disagreeing, you're never going to figure anything out, and you're going to be frustrated and miserable because you thought that they were going to make you happy. And they were thinking the same thing about you. And so putting two selfish people in a house together, looking for their own needs, never going to work. How does this work into our finances? Right? You're, people spend a ridiculous amount of money to buy things that are going to break in five years. And they spend the rest of their life paying off the credit cards in debt because they wanted to spend money they didn't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't even like. And so it just leads to this insatiable desires of our self. It works out in everything that we do, from our finances, from our jobs, from our relationships, to our marriage, how we raise our kids, where we even go to church. Because the whole question is, what's in it for me? Where do I go to church? What do they have? What do they have to offer? How can I get fed? How can I get my needs met? And we don't think about the glory of God and we don't think about the needs of others. Does anybody feel this at all? Am I the only one? Like, Does anybody see that worldly wisdom is not working? It doesn't take a genius to look around the world and say, something is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not working. This is fractured, flawed, and broken. I mean, consider how worldly wisdom has worked. There's war, there's, there, there's oppression, there's violence, there, there's poverty, there's racism, classism, sexism. There's a massive problem in our world, and it comes from this line of thinking, what's in it for me? That's the problem. That we want all of the glory for us and in this life and it's who we are and how we live and we become our own gods. And James says there's a better way. We don't have to live life this way. There is another way. There is another type of wisdom that's not marked by selfish ambitions and bitter jealousy. There, there is another way in which we can live. And so James is going to tell us now about worldly uh, godly wisdom. So first we've seen worldly wisdom. It doesn't work. Because then he's going to show us what godly wisdom looks like. And here's what he says as he continues in verse, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above. This is, this is godly wisdom. It's the wisdom that comes from above. And now when you hear from above, what that means is that it's not innate within you. Nobody has wisdom inside of themselves. You can't look inside of you. We have to look outside of us. And the wisdom that comes it comes from above. No one's born with this sort of wisdom, but you can be born again with the wisdom that comes from God. And so he says it's the wisdom from above. Now, when you hear the wisdom above, what does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, he says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So Jesus being the second member of the Trinity. In the beginning, God. Right? In eternity past, perfect unity and harmony and relationship with Himself, deeply satisfied as the Trinity. The Father created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit hovered over the sea, and Jesus being the wisdom of God, intricately designed this word, this life to work in a way that would reflect His glory and bring about our greatest joy. And so when God made everything, He said, glorious. 
And Jesus was there as the wisdom of God. And then God made man and we had a relationship and we had a closeness with God and we walked with Him in the ways that He tended, but we sinned and we fell and we rebelled against God's ways and we began to live in ways that were more worldly and so our relationship with God was separated and our closeness with God was lost and we continue to live headlong, destined for a life in hell. But then God in His wisdom sent His Son Jesus, and he made a plan before the foundations of the world to send his son Jesus on a rescue mission to save us from our sins and to ransom us and to be the perfect sacrifice in our behalf. So Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never said anything that he shouldn't have said. Jesus never did anything that he shouldn't have done. Jesus never acted in a way that was contrary to his own nature. And you think, how did Jesus live that life? How did Jesus live a life without sin? How did he do it? In Luke 2.52, it tells us he grew in wisdom. And that Jesus had the wisdom of God and that Jesus lived for the glory of God and everything that Jesus did, he did for the glory of God. The way he talked to others was for God's glory. The way that he served others was for God's glory. The way that he helped others was for God's glory. The way that he healed and performed miracles and the way that he spoke and preached and the way that he developed his relationships, all of it was for the glory of God. And then Jesus was arrested and crucified and Jesus died for the glory of God. So that way, through His death, God would be glorified and we could have the joy that comes from that. And I want you to consider this. Jesus didn't just die to save you from your sins. Jesus also died to give us a better way to live. And so Jesus wants us to know that there is a wisdom that comes from God that actually will change your life. Now, when we hear about the wisdom that comes from God, it sounds totally different. And What does this wisdom look like? How do we know if someone's living a life marked by the wisdom that comes from God? Is it because that they say they are? Oh, well, I'm so wise. No. Let's look at, let's look at your life. Because wisdom is not what you know. Wisdom is the way that you, you live. And so he goes and he says that there's different qualities for a person who has this sort of, of wisdom. He says, first, it's, it's pure. And so a person who's walking in the wisdom of God is, is pure. There's no mixed motives that they are who they say they are. The way that they live is the way that they live, and they live for the glory of God. And when you listen to them, you know that they love you because purity is the position of their heart. They don't talk out of two sides of their mouth. They're not one person on Sunday and another person on Wednesday, and they're not one person in their community group and another person with their friends. They are who they are, and they have a life that is pure. Let's just be honest. Isn't it exhausting being fake all the time? Isn't it? that we have to try to be someone that we're not, isn't that just tiring and exhausting? Jesus says, why don't you just follow me? And why don't you just be pure? Because that's the way that I intend. He says it's also, it's also peaceable. Have you ever hung around someone and you're like, they are totally at ease. They're totally relaxed. How, that's kind of scary, isn't it? When you're around somebody and they're just always at peace. No, it's not to say they don't have emotions, but they don't take everything personally. They don't overreact. They don't freak out. They don't blow up. And they're not offended over every single little thing because they have peace. And there's a lot of wisdom that comes from living a peaceable life. He says also they're, they're gentle. Now, if the whole purpose of my life is to get what I want in this moment, my happiness, then I have no reason to be gentle. Because I'm going to have to take, and you have something that I need, and I want it, and I need it. So I have to manipulate, I have to shove, I have to push, I have to take. But a gentleness says, there's nothing you can have that I need. 
There's nothing that you have that you can take from me because everything I have, it comes from God. And there's a gentleness that comes with this wisdom. And also it's open to reason. You can actually talk to a gentle, or to a peaceable, or to a wise person, and they listen to you. Like they're not just, they're not just waiting for you to shut up so they can start talking again. They, they just, they, they're able to listen to you and they, they say, you know what? I, I understand. I, I know I, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I, I think I have a lot of room to grow in. And so, yeah, you can come and you can talk to me about things that you see in my life because there is stuff that I need to work on. And when I read the Bible, I do have questions and there are parts that I am a little confused about. And so, yeah, I would love to be able to have a conversation around, around this because they're open to reason. Guys, this is why I tell you all the time you need to be in a community group. There's a lot of wisdom found in your community group. Sharing meals and conversations and listening to other people's perspectives and walking together. And this is why we want you in grow class after our Sunday gathering so that way you can learn who Jesus is and what God has called you to do and why we want discipleship groups and for you to serve because there's a lot of wisdom found in other people. i got a newsflash. You're not as smart as you think you are. And you're not as successful as you think that you are. If you were, then we'd be open to reason and allow other people to speak into our lives. One of the, one of the best things that I've ever done in my life is invite other men to speak into me. To say, Byron, here's an area in your life that I need, know needs work. Here's an area in your marriage that I know that needs work. Here's some things in the church that I think you need to work on. And for me, to be able to have those conversations without fear... That's open to reason. Because I'm not the smartest man in the room. I'm not as successful as I think that I am. And so I need to be open to reason so other people can speak life into me. And then number five, he says that wisdom is full of mercy. That the more you grow in wisdom, the more your life looks like Jesus. And when your life looks like Jesus, it overflows into other aspects. So it looks like holiness and redemption and reconciliation and, and generosity and gift giving and kindness and mercy and compassion. And it's filled with good fruits. And other people, they, they start to see it. People do see your life. People do see who you are. People do see the way that you live. And the way that we live, when we have the wisdom of God, it reflects the grace of Jesus. And he says it's impartial. Now listen, if my life is all about me, I cannot be impartial. I have to show favoritism. Because you have something that I need and so I can benefit from this. And then the person who is poor, or the person who is outside, the person who is unlike me, not like me, I have nothing to gain. And so I will ignore those and show favoritism to the other. But if I have the wisdom of God, then I know this. Everyone's made in the image of God and Jesus loves everyone and Jesus died for everyone and Jesus serves everyone. And so the wisdom of God shows no favorites. And then lastly, it's sincere. That you can have honest conversations. Not just, hey, how's the weather? How's the kids? How's work? Not just surface level conversations. You can actually have a real, honest, heart-to-heart conversation with this person. And they can get down to the heart of the matter and say, you know what? I am hurting. Yes, I am broken. Yes, I have things that I need to work on and I need some help in this area and I'm going to show you who I really am because wisdom removes the masks that we all wear. See, the world's wisdom is totally opposed to this. You can't let people see who you for you truly are. You can't let people think about you that way because the moment people see you are weak. The moment that people see you cry. The moment that people see you for who you truly are is the moment that you lose your respect, 
the moment that you lose your credibility, it's the moment that people stop looking up to you, stop looking to you, stop looking towards you, and it's the moment that you lose everything. So please, take another selfie, put another filter on it, use a hashtag so people can double-click stupid pictures of your face, because that's how you're awesome. That's worldly wisdom, and it's exhausting, and it's tiring, and it's not working. It's not working. Consider the world. Everyone is depressed and freaking out and stressed and exhausted and overworked and burned out and frustrated and perennially miserable. It's not working, yet we keep doing it. James is like, there's a better way. I got a better way for you. And God, this entire time, He's not been pointing to you. He's been trying to get you to look to Him. And he says, if you would just look to me, I'll give you everything you need. He says, if you would just turn to me, I'll give you everything you need. If you just worship me, I'll give you everything that you need. If you just, if you just praise me, I'll, I'll give you, if you trust me, I'll, everything you ever wanted is only found in me. And so if you will glory and live your life for my glory, then I promise you this, I will give you joy. Isn't this a picture of a beautiful God that all of our lives we have fought and scraped and kicked and clawed and screamed, I want what I deserve! Friends, you don't want what you deserve. You don't. God gives you something that you don't deserve. God gives you Himself. God gives you something that you could never earn. He gives you Himself. The Creator of the universe to take up residence in your heart and to give you a new life you, you could never earn that. And that's what's available to you when you walk in, the world, in godly wisdom. That's what God promises. And so here's what I want you to do. Okay, we're going to close. I'm going to give you opportunities to respond. And we're going to have communion to where you can respond by partaking in Holy Communion. We're going to worship and sing and we can respond by doing that. We're going to give up our tithes and offerings to show that our Savior is better than our stuff and we can worship and there's a lot of wisdom found in those things. But here's... Here's something I want you to do because it defeats the purpose if all I do is just preach about wisdom. Okay? Because then you have more information and that's not wisdom. So I need to help you to live a wise life. Now, how many of you, you're like, I need wisdom. Like, I got some decisions. I got some things that I need to know how to make the right decisions. Okay, wisdom would have rose its hand. So, um, so, so we need some wisdom. So I want to I give you, here's how, here's how we get wisdom. In any circumstance, in any question that you have, I want to help you make the wise choice. So in your marriage, in your kids, in your finances, at your job, whatever decision is coming up, we're going to make a wise decision, a godly wisdom. Here's the question that you ask. Does this glorify God? Whatever you're facing, whatever decision you have to make, ask this question. Does this glorify God? If the answer is yes, praise God. Like, go for it. Do it. It's going to bring you joy. The answer is no. If it doesn't glorify God, don't do it. Because in the end, it's going to lead to more problems. Does this glorify God? Let's pray. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 930 
or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.